Well, it's nice to be with all of you again. I, uh, nice to see all of you. Beautiful day. I've already been to church. How about you? Oh, yeah. Praise the Lord. Thank you for the wonderful worship and reminding us of just who Jesus is. In fact, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. I, I think sometimes we, um, well, well, all of us have faced at one level or another over this last month, over years or so. Uh, we, we may have wondered, God, where are you? Does Jesus really matter? Is, is he still apropos in this 21st century? Before you begin to venture your own answer to that question, I'm going to answer it. Uh, I want to answer it first, and then we're going to talk about it. And I'm going to say yes, yes, uh, without a doubt. He still is. He's very apropos. He is very much a part of our lives. Um, the birth, the life, the suffering, the teaching, the death of Jesus is the single most significant event in world history. Uh, you just cannot deny that. Everything revolves around him, and because of him, things change. And most importantly, and I pray even in your own life and experience, is that he has changed you. He changes us in our hearts and lives. This morning we're going to, uh, at the end of our service, be having uh, sharing together in communion. And so I, I just... I felt like it just seemed right to kind of develop the whole sermon this morning around the theme of communion. Um, it's sometimes we forget what this little cup and the little piece of bread all all stand for in our lives. And so um, we're going to talk about those different things this morning. It is remembering what Jesus did on our behalf and the importance of his life. It is because of Jesus that we have life, that we have salvation, that we, uh, we have hope, we have peace. All that we have is from him and through him. Uh, there are two very important truths that I want us to remember as we begin here this morning. They are very, very important as we think about Jesus and the, the communion and remembering his suffering and death and those things that go along with communion. And that is, first of all, no one took Jesus' life. We have to understand that. We, we know what happened. We know he was arrested. We know he went through some illegal trials. We know what they did on the cross and all of that. But nobody took his life. He willingly gave his life for you and for me. He, he could have resisted. And as the old song says, he could have called 10,000 angels. But he died for you and for me. So nobody took his life. The second thing that's important for us to remember is that Jesus was not an afterthought on God's part. It's not like God said, oh, oh I forgot something and uh, decided to, you know, throw in Jesus here on this earth. No. He was a part of the plan and the planning from the very beginning of time. We have to understand that. Jesus was always a part of the plan and a part of God's plan. In fact, in Galatians chapter 4, in verse 4 we read here, but when the time had fully come, God had things that needed to take place. Now, I don't fully understand all of this and understand why it ought to take place, but when time had fully come, there are a lot of things that needed to take place in the world. That's why Jesus came kind of where he did a couple thousand years ago as opposed to several thousand years ago when maybe the world was created. I don't know. 
I don't uh, put all that together. I don't presume to not understand everything that God does. But we have to accept the fact that at the right time, when time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's, that's what people read in those days to redeem those who were under the law. Those were the, that's, that was all of us that we might receive full rights of sons and daughters. Jesus came that we might receive full rights of sons and daughters of his. It took the suffering and death of Jesus for us to find that kind of right, that kind of sonship or daughtership, that kind of oneness or redemption or forgiveness uh, because of what Jesus did. Now, even though Jesus is a New Testament figure, we understand that, don't we? He was the, the Old Testament is prior to Jesus, the New Testament since Jesus. He was born, and of course, since we live in the New Testament half. Even though Jesus was a New Testament figure, to really understand the significance of who Jesus is, we need to travel back in time. So we're going to do that. We're going to go on a journey together, and I trust you'll hang with me as we go through this. It was shortly after creation, back we're not sure how long, but it wasn't too many days. We're pretty sure God had created the world. He placed Adam and Eve in the world. And he said, okay, you're in this beautiful setting, probably somewhat like our setting here, except there was more rain, I hope. Uh, but they were in a beautiful setting and a beautiful place in the world, wherever that was, and uh, said, just enjoy it. Enjoy it. We only have one thing for you. There's a tree over there that you're not supposed to participate in. Leave it be. Leave it be. We don't want you to eat of the fruit of that tree. Well, sure enough, that happened. Uh, Satan appeared in the form of a serpent. He tempted both Adam and Eve. They ate of the fruit, and we know what happened. The scripture says their eyes were open. It's kind of nice when our eyes are closed, huh? <laughs> But their eyes were opened, and they realized and knew and understood evil all of, a, all of a sudden for the first time. You think about you think about that. If we if we could live in this life without understanding evil or knowing evil, but they had experienced that because of their disobedience. And there's an interesting verse here connected with that is, and it's in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, and it is God speaking to the serpent. Uh, Things changed at this moment. And God speaks to the serpent and says, I will put enmity, now that's not a word I use very often, but hostility, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now listen, he will crush your head and you are going to strike his heel, he said to, he said to Satan. Now let me kind of unravel that just a little bit. He said, he will crush your head, referring here to Jesus, and, I, and you will strike his heel. So on the cross, we get the picture of Jesus, or the, the heel of Jesus was struck. On the cross, I mean the heel, excuse me, let's back up here. You will strike his heel. Yes, the heel of Jesus was struck. And, uh, but he said of Jesus, he said, you are the one coming. He said, you will crush his head. In other words, Satan's days are numbered. Eventually, he's going to be stomped out. 
That's what he's saying to us here in this very first verse is the, is the first hint that we get that something is going to change someday. We're not sure when, we're not sure how, but something is going to change someday, and it certainly, certainly did. Now, our next stop is uh, around 1500 B.C., so about 1500 years before Jesus was born. And to find that one, we need to go to the Exodus the book, uh, second book in the Old Testament. I trust you have your Bibles with you today. Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. Now, hang in here with me with this reading. This is, uh, this is very crucial. God promises deliverance. Now, chapter 5 of Exodus, verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. And the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. God is getting ready to act. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, and I'm not going to let them go, but I'm going to drive, he'll drive you out of the country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God's Almighty. Now, just just kind of quickly here, God's Almighty. Uh, he's referring there to uh, the, the names, you know, you've probably read someplace along the way that God has a variety of names. He, he has several names. And this one here, God Almighty, is El Shaddai. And by that he means uh, he's the God of overpowering strength. He's powerful God. But he goes ahead to say, what is it? He says, um, I, I spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's God Almighty. But by not my name, the Lord, capital letters, L-O-R-D, and, and that word is Yahweh. He says, and by saying that, he is indicating that he is the one who has absolute power. He is the one who has total control over this world. And he's able, because he put it all together, he's able to do as he Reasons. He can do as he wills. He said, so, so just remember this. Complete freedom to do whatever I've promised. And okay, let's go ahead with the reading here. He said, uh, the Lord, I, did my, I made myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them and gave them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I have remembered my covenant. Now, it's, it's important you understand that probably 350, 400 years prior to this, Israel came to Egypt. They were invited to come to Egypt. You recall it was, um, uh, recall, there's no food in the land of drought. And so Egypt had had it because of uh, Joseph, one of the Israelites, because of Joseph. So his whole family came, just a handful of them at the time. And things were going very well for them in Egypt for a few years. But shortly after that, they began to grow in number. And uh, uh, the Egyptians got a little concerned about that. They could overpower us, they thought. And so they put them into slavery. And they became the builders and slavers, whatever it is that Egypt needed to have done. Therefore, say to the Israelites, verse 6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. You're, you're not going to stay here forever. Things are going to change again. I will free you from being slaves to them and will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. 
and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord, and I am the Lord can do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> what he says to us in these, uh, in these verses, there's uh, the names. We talked about the names just kind of quickly there. We don't have a lot of time to deal with that. But, but the names are significant because in those names, uh, there's, there, he, he talks about four things that's going to happen here. He says, I will deliver you from the bondage of Egypt. He said, I will adopt you as my own people. And then he also says, I will guide you and take you to the land that I promised your ancestors. And he says, most importantly, I haven't forgotten you. You feel forgotten because things haven't been going too well for you. In fact, things have been going terrible for you. I want you to know, I want to remind you, you are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. And because you and I today stand grafted into God's family. He says the same thing to you and me as well. He says, You're, I, you enjoy the same promises that Israel had in those days. You enjoy the promise of deliverance. You enjoy the promise of adoption. And you enjoy the promise of being remembered by God himself. Don't ever forget that. We're not forgotten. This world is not forgotten. What's going on in our world is not forgotten. Well, in the next couple of chapters, they go through the ten plagues. You know a little bit about that, probably, undoubtedly. Skip over a few pages to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. He goes to ten plagues. The tenth plague is going to be uh, the, the death of the uh, firstborn of all people and animals in Egypt. But, but I'm giving you a cure. You, you're not going to go through that. It's, I'm going to give you a cure. If you do what I say... You, you will miss this. But he says, this is crucial that you follow this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th, they changed the calendar right there, right there. He changed the calendar. Uh, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each person is to take a lamb. Now, I want you to watch for that word. It's going to come up often. We sang about it a few moments ago. The lamb. A lamb. Okay, each person is to take a lamb for his family, each one, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of what? Lamb. Lamb that's needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you are to take them from sheep or goats, doesn't matter either one, take care of them until the 14th day of the month. In other words, you're going to watch them for two weeks to be sure they don't have any sickness, illness. This thing had to be the best, most perfect, spotless, right lamb of the flock. So we're going to watch it for two weeks to be sure everything's okay with it. That's what he's saying. Verse 7, then you're to take some of the blood. Oh, you're to slaughter the lamb. Oh, I'm glad I didn't live in those days. <laughs> Somebody else share, shed blood for me. That, that would be very difficult. Verse 7, you're to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and the tops of your door. Sounds kind of gruesome to us, doesn't it? He says, you're gonna, this is what you're going to do. They say, 
They didn't question it. They just said, okay, God, if you say so. Doesn't make much sense to me, but I'll do it because you said so. Right? Okay. Um, this tops the size of the door frames of the houses where you eat the lambs. That same night, you're to eat the meal, roast it over the fire, along with bitter herbs. No question about any of this. It's very specifically spelled out. And bread made without yeast. Do not eat the raw meat or cook it in water, but roast it over the fire. Head, legs, inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it's left over, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat with your coat tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In other words, got to be ready to go. You've got to be ready to go. Things are changing, I'm telling you. And be ready to go. There's a little, uh, a little uh, what do we say, a uh, hint to us here of the second coming of Jesus. You've got to be ready to go. got to be ready to go. See, this whole event uh, uh, speaks to us of our lives and how we live still today. So you've got to be ready to go. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. There's that word. I, I can do what I want. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood on your doorposts, I will pass over your house. Hence, they call it the pastor. Then I will, um, no destructive plague will touch you um, when I strike Egypt. You know, um, Jewish people from that day on did it every year. They still, they still celebrate Passover. Um, they, they sometimes it's referred to as a Seder dinner. I had the privilege of attending one one time with a friend. A Jewish person put on this very large Seder dinner. Very interesting. If you ever get a chance to go, it's a reenactment. This is what God told them to do. The bitter herbs are just to remind the people of how bad life was for them. And uh, all of the good foods and things remind them of what was going to come as a result of that. Now, take that, that word lamb, that word lamb is very significant to us. And we got another stop. And we go now to the New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29. Um, this, is, uh, this has become uh, uh, just a very special verse to me. I don't know why it is, but uh, this, this little reading here is kind of amazing. This is John, as in John the Baptist. And it's written by John, who's John the Apostle, or the follower, you know, one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, but the person he's writing about here is John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist and Jesus were related, um, cousins or something like that, as you recall. They apparently did not grow up together because it doesn't seem to be any re real close relationship, but there's an acquaintance there with them. And John was probably about six months or so older than Jesus. You can read about that in Matthew and also Luke particularly. But he said the next day, <clears throat> John saw Jesus coming. John, John had just stepped on the scene. John was a very unusual man. If you read that whole, if we had time to read the whole first chapter, John was, was quite different for his day. The way things he ate, the way he dressed, he stood out amongst the people. And John was out preaching one day, and he looked over, and he sees Jesus coming. Now, the, he was such a dynamic person, a lot of people said, are you the one we're supposed to be looking for? 
You know, God has been silent for like 400 years, and people kept wondering, when's he, when's he coming? When's he coming? They knew something was going to happen. They had read the prophecies of the Old Testament. They knew something was going to happen. And it had been about 400 years, or, I mean, from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew. We have, you know, there's that space in there of time. And, and so uh, the people thought, hey, John, maybe he's the one. He's he's dynamic. He's an incredible speaker. He must be the one. They kept saying that, and he kept saying, "No, no, 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 no. I'm not the one. I'm not even worthy to tie up the shoes of the person who's coming. You just wait." And one day, when John was preaching, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Look, the what Lamb of God is that word again? Take a lamb, kill it, roast it over the fire." And John looks up and he sees Jesus said, look, the Lamb of God. I like the King James Version here. It says, behold the Lamb of God. A little more emphasis to me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the, what? Sin of the world. The sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed. I came to introduce him to you. I did not know him, he says, but uh, the one who comes after me has surpassed me. In other words, even though John was a little bit older, you know, in those days, if, if you were older than somebody, you were looked up to by that person. It was very significant your age. If you were the older and they were younger, you were the, the kingpin, so to speak. And uh, but he says, uh, even though I'm older than him, he's greater than me because he's always been. He was here before. He's been here before. He has always been a part of this thing because God, God wasn't surprised. God had this planned in the very, very beginning. So then John gave this testimony. He said, I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known them except the one who sent me. Who's the one who sent him? Look, we look over. Yeah, verse 6. Then came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He said, I wouldn't have known except the one who sent me. God, to baptize with water, told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has become the Lamb of the Old Testament. That spotless, the one that we're going to study, we're going to be sure that it's pure, it's right, it's, it's, it's the perfect one. Jesus has become that one to us. And one more, one more last reading. Turn back a few pages to Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread. Uh, one of the scriptures we read in the Old Testament there talked about you're going to have bread without leaven or yeast in it. And that's what unleavened bread is. Uh, the feast of the unleavened bread was for 14 days prior to the Passover for some reason. You know, the yeast in the Old Testament was symbolic of sin. And we're going to clear all of that, anything that smacked of of, of not being right with God. We're going to clean that out of our houses as we prepare our hearts for this day of celebration called the Passover. So that's what they're doing. Uh, that day came of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
See, that, that same thing's been going on now for 1,500 years. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where, um, where do you want us to prepare it? They said, he replied, as you enter the city, there's a man carrying a water, jar of water. You will meet him. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I meet the Passover with my disciples? Now, probably Jesus had gone through there two or three days before, and he set it up with the owner saying, hey, well, I'm going to send a couple of my couple of the men that travel with me, and uh, this is what I want you to do. This is what I need you to do, the upper room. He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Period. That's the end of the Passover meal. Something different happens. No one's ever done that in the Passover meal before. But something different. The whole scene changes. And he took bread. This is communion. Passover, he ended the meal, but he said, We got something new we're going to talk about. Something new we're going to do here. Here it is. You you remember now that Jesus, this is Thursday night, and he's going to be arrested here right away. Trials on the cross. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, give it for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. And... Um, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He took the bread, he took the cup. Communion. Communion is one of those things that we refer to as a sacrament. Now, the word sacrament is not found in the Bible. It's an old, 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 old church word. Um, it, was, it was used to describe something that was of spiritual significance, highly spiritually significant. Uh, the nature of a sacrament is it's something that's very ordinary, like bread and a cup, and then it becomes a deeper, or it has a deeper spiritual meaning. So we have a little cup and a piece of bread. It, it, it really is not a, not a real big deal, but because of what Jesus said to us, the significance goes much deeper than just a little cup and a little piece of bread. Uh, the, the bread and the cup are the body and the blood of Jesus. And the time of communion, we celebrate all that he has done for us. And it is a promise from God to his people and a promise from his people to God. God says, I will keep my covenant with you. And we say to God, I will obey and trust you. Uh, for something to become a sacrament, it, it must have three, three different things here. First of all, it's an outward sign. It's an outward sign. It's, it's something that 
that we are familiar with. It's something that we know about. It's an outward sign. John Wesley was one of the, back, lived back in the 1700s. He's very instrumental and part of our church. Uh, theologian and a preacher of his day. He called it, it's an outward sign of an inward grace. An outward sign of an inward grace and a means by where we receive grace. Now, grace is one of those very beautiful words in the Bible uh, that has to do with God's love. Even though you and I don't deserve his love, he loves us. That's God's grace. Even though we don't deserve him, he loves us. That's his grace to us. So he says it's an outward sign of an inward grace and a means by which we receive grace. Now, what is a means of grace? A means of grace is a channel through which we experience God. It is a channel through which we experience God. So in a few moments, we're going to share together in the cup and the bread. Those are moments in which we can experience the very spiritual presence of God in our lives. What you are doing here today is a means of grace. You got up this morning, you washed your face, brushed your teeth, and put your clothes on, came here to join us in a worship service. This is a means of grace. I trust that whenever you sit down, you said, Lord, I want to hear what you have to say today. I'm in the channel through which you want to speak to me. When you're at home and you open the Word of God, you sit down in front of the dinner table or whatever, start reading God's word. That is a means of grace. You're asking God to speak to you through his word, a means of grace. When you sing or hum one of those beautiful songs like we sang this morning or some other song that you may know, that's a means of grace. You're being lifted by the very presence of God in your life. A means of grace is a very vital part of who we are and what we are and what the church is about. So a means of grace becomes very important to us. It is prayer, it is worship, it is all of those things. And the third uh, criteria for something to become a, a sacrament is it's instituted by Christ. It's something that Jesus did. He, he did it. He, he was the first. He passed the bread around and then he passed the cup around. He was the first one to do that. Uh, not just anything can be sacraments. The church is reserved. In fact, our church has two, two sacraments, communion and baptism. Yeah. Jesus did that too, didn't he? And John, we read, or the other gospels, John doesn't report the baptism of Jesus, but Mark and Matthew and Luke report the baptism of Jesus. John just reports the incident. Uh, Jesus was baptized. So these are the two things that we have set aside as sacraments. Both events that Jesus participated in. Now, this word sacrament, <clears throat> is there another word that you're familiar with that sounds like that? <laughs> Sacramento. And sacrifice, too. That's very much a part of it. I want to talk about Sacramento for just a minute. Uh, we're not in Sacramento, of course, but let's be. You go down once a year or something. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know, what, 40 miles down the road that way, I think. <clears throat> uh, I think it's that way. Um, back in the 
late 1700s, early 1800s, a Spanish explorer, Gabriel Moraga. Now, this is just, this is secular history. It, it really doesn't have anything to do with the Bible, but I just found it so interesting that I read this. A, a writer, oh, Gabriel Moraga, he was, he was an explorer and traveling into the valley, the Sacramento Valley. He had a person with him, an amanuensis, uh, like a person who carried a piece of paper or something and wrote down their events uh, for other people, you know, to publish it sometimes. So he, this, this person, and this is what this person, he doesn't have a name, just Gabriel, who's the leader, I guess. When he saw the valley, Sacramento Valley, here's what he wrote. Canopies of oaks and cottonwoods, many festooned, uh, decorated um, with grapevines. Uh, we live not, uh, not too far off the river, and that's still there, the cottonwoods, boy. In the fall, those white things are going to start blowing in the wind here pretty soon. <laughs> it's going to affect me anyway. And, and their trees are just covered in the grapevines. It still is. Uh, these, what, 300 years later. Overhung both sides of the blue current, the river. Birds chattered in the trees and big fish darted through the pellucid depths, uh, the clear water. He said, looking around, he exclaimed, Escomo el Sargado Sacramento, meaning this is like a holy sacrament. That's where that name came from that's down the hill. This is like a holy sacrament. God, bring us back to that. Bring us back to that in our day, in our day. There are a few other names that sometimes if you've been, uh, maybe some churches, I, I assume you call it communion here. I, I, that's what I've been calling it. Uh, but there's some other names I just want to mention to you real quickly. The Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, are names that we sometimes use for this event literally based on the last meal. This was the last food that Jesus ate. But he had communion with the disciples. He didn't eat anymore until, until the ascension. Uh, or, well, until his resurrection, I should say. Um, sometimes we use the word holy communion. Holy as being an event that is set apart for God. We set this apart for God. We, we see the word holy appear quite often in the Old Testament where they used water jars that were, were strictly for use in the, in the uh, tabernacle, in the, in the worship, and, and they weren't used for anything else, and they became holy jar water jars because they were only used for God's purpose. As we get in more into the New Testament, we, and that, it's not exclusive, it's holy that used other places, but, but we start seeing that God is talking to us as people. I want you to be holy. I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart for God's purposes. You have a purpose greater than just an existence. You are to be set apart for God's purposes. So holy communion. It's in the communion, the idea of communion is we're sharing with the community of believers and the remembering the sacrifice of Christ. So we're sharing with one another, we're sharing with the Lord himself because he is present, he is And another word that sometimes is used is Eucharist. 
That's a Greek word, and it simply means to be thankful. Remember what I just read there about the communion, Jesus said, he gave thanks and he broke the bread. He gave thanks and he passed around the cup. Then in Acts chapter 2, as the church was starting to form, in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, 47, it said the church, you know, they didn't have as, they were meeting every day in each other's home. Every day they got together. And it said they were glad and thankful in their hearts. And that's where that word Eucharist comes from. So uh, this is communion. It's Holy Communion. It's the Lord's Supper. It's the Last Supper. It's the Eucharist. No one church has a particular a mark, a corner on the market of, of their name, but it's just the different names that we sometimes use. Now, the first communion took place, Jesus, as I mentioned there, it was on Thursday evening. Following this event, that would have been the Passover day, and then Jesus introduced communion, his blood and his, his body and his blood now for his disciples, and he said, we should continue doing that until I come back. And then he went to the garden to pray, and while he was in the garden praying, you know, he was arrested. He was carried off in the night, had an illegal trial. He was condemned to die, and they hung him on the cross probably somewhere around 9 o'clock Friday morning, and he died around noon. Uh, on that Friday, placed in the grave. He's in there. Everything was quiet on Saturday, and of course, we know what happened Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Talk about everything changing, everything changed that meant in Jesus' life. Sunday, he was raised to new life. Now, the old Passover meal was a reenactment of God's powerful deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, because they actually did. You know, he said, not only are they going to let you leave, they're going to tell you to leave. And that's what happened. Pharaoh finally gave in. And he said, okay, go, get out of here. In fact, all of his, all the people looked around him, give them food, give them stuff, anything they need, let them take it with them, get them out of here. The sad thing is, for him, he later changed his mind. The past, that was a Passover meal, and the Lord's Supper is a reenactment of God's not delivering us now from Egypt, but Egypt was kind of a symbol or a, a precursor to what we know today as sin sin. So the deliverance from Egypt was to us a deliverance of sin and death because of the sun and because of what happened on that Easter Sunday back a couple of thousand years ago. Well, let's wrap this all up with back to John chapter 129. John sees Jesus coming. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> Everything we know about God's deliverance is summarized in that statement. Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the new Lamb of God. No more going into the barnyard and selecting the best lamb, watering it, cooking it, than God been done for you, for which you and I are grateful. Jesus was the spotless lamb. He was the one chosen by God to carry the sin of the whole world. Through his death on the cross, he became the final sacrifice. No more killing, no more draining blood, no more cooking the meat and preparing all of that. 
We simply now put our faith and trust in the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died on our behalf. He's the one who gave his blood and his body for us, that we might be born anew, the Lamb of God. All of this, just, just tying it up, a reminder of Christ's death. He is our Passover Lamb. A reminder of our oneness in Him. We're in communion with Him. We're in community with one another. And it's a reminder that He's coming back. Jesus is coming again one of these days. So, does Jesus really matter? Does Jesus still make a difference after over 3,000 years? This is some head nodding. You've experienced it. It's significant, and that's what's key. It's not just a history lesson. It's not just something we talk about, but it's something that we can experience by our faith and trust in our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the old song says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it by the There's a reading in our church manual about, about this. <clears throat> the communion supper instituted by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as a sacrament which proclaims his life, his sufferings, his sacrificial death and resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until his return. The supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by his spirit. It has to be received in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins and believing in Christ for salvation are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. We come to the table that we may be renewed in life and salvation and be made one by the Spirit. In unity with the church, we confess our faith Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, and so we pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we gather at this your table in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who by your Spirit was anointed to preach the good news to the poor, proclaim, proclaim release to the captives, set at liberty those who are oppressed, Christ healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he gave thanks. He broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Does everybody have one of the little cups? Is there somebody that can pass? We got them. Anybody need one? Okay. Is there somebody available? Okay. They're, they're coming. Um, go ahead. Any others? All right. As we just read on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he finished the celebration of Passover, remembering the deliverance from Egypt with his disciples. And then he said, as he passed around the bread, said, this is my body that was broken for you. Eat it in remembrance that I gave my life for you. Let us eat together. And then following the meal, he passed around the cup. He said to his disciples, he said, this, this is my blood. My blood that I shed on your behalf. The beauty of all of this is that Christ did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And because of our faith in him, we can have the experience, the relationship for ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. It is because of his blood that we can be saved. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Let us drink and remember it. He gave his life for us. <clears throat> I love you, Father. We're so grateful that we do not live this life alone. We walk with you. And no matter what happens around us, our hope, our trust, our deliverance is in you. Just as you delivered the Israelites from bondage in Egypt 3,500 years ago, you deliver us today by the blood of the Lamb from our sin, from ourselves, from death and destruction. And you put within us new life and hope and peace and the joy of your presence and we thank you. Bless these your people. May they be so aware of your love to them and your grace on their behalf. You come to us even when we don't deserve it. Put your arms of love around them and during these days of change and what's going on, not only outside, but even things within the church as they're praying for and seeking your guidance on a new pastor for them. We pray for wisdom. 
the right person will be here and will come to lead this church. Thank you for your anointing on this church. We sense it when we walk in. Thank you for your anointing on these people. We see it in their faces. Bless them, Lord, and may they be so aware that they're your children and that you remember that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.